reason why I picked that song, it said, um, talked about giving God the glory for the great things He has done. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. We're going to see the word glory used like ten times in just a couple of verses. And so you've heard us say up here before that when we see a word repeated quite often like that, it's like, hmm, maybe we ought to look at that. Maybe we ought to pay attention to that, right? So as you guys obviously saw earlier, we're continuing on um, in our look at Second Corinthians. And I mentioned last week that for the next four weeks, we're going to look at what we're calling a series of proofs. In other words, um, some arguments that Paul is setting forth with regards to his adequacy and the adequacy of fellow workers of the faith and of his ministry. You guys remember that from last week. We said that. Um, he said, we are adequate because we don't peddle the word of God. And this morning, we're going to see his second proof where he's going to say, we are adequate because we are ministers of a new covenant. We are ministers of a new covenant, of which all of us here at Renew are also ministers of a new covenant. We are under Jesus' blood. We are no longer under the law. So that's part of what Paul is going to look at this morning. And so, just as a quick little refresher, look at um, verse 16b, if you would, of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. And who is adequate for these things? And so we said, what is Paul actually asking? He's saying, who is adequate for what things? Well, Last week we said, who is adequate to be a sweet fragrance for Christ? Who is adequate to be triumphant in Christ? Who is adequate to be used by God to spread the knowledge of himself everywhere? And so the first proof he said was, well, we are adequate because we don't peddle the word of God like others do. Like the people who come in when I'm not there in Corinth with you, who are false teachers and who are trying to encourage you to still follow the law. And they're preaching and they're teaching in ways that are not consistent with what you guys have been saved in, and that is Christ Jesus. Paul said that we came to you with Christ crucified, and that's it. Not the cross plus a bunch of other stuff, simply Jesus Christ crucified. And its entirety. And that is the message on which you were saved, and that is the message on which you believed, Corinthians. And so when these other guys come in and say, you still got to keep holding to the law, that's incorrect. And he reminded the Corinthians that they're often doing it, that these false teachers are doing it for financial gain, for material gain, for their own personal benefit, for the glory and the notoriety and the, uh, the, the, uh, the famousness, if you will, right? To build their resume. And he says, that's not who we are, and that's not how we came to you, and we don't ask you for letters of commendation like they do. Nor do we send letters to you saying that we should come preach because we're really great and look at our resume and look at how good we are at speaking like the other guys do. And so he defended his ministry first by saying they don't peddle the word of God. And this morning, the second proof we're going to look at is that he says we are adequate for these things. We are adequate to be used by God, to be a fragrant aroma everywhere we go. Because we are ministers of a new covenant. We're not trying to reinforce and continue to market, if you will, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the law. But rather, 
Christ crucified and the benefits and the glory that he is owed in that. And so we're going to look at verses um, 4 through 6 initially, but we're going to go all the way through verse 18 of chapter 3. So look at verses 4 through 6 with me. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so he says, we have this great confidence You know, he essentially just poo-pooed, if you will. He just shot down this practice by the others of requiring or asking for letters of commendation. That was a practice of the time. That was something that was generally accepted. It was done regularly. And then he comes in and says, Nah, we don't need that. You guys are our letters. Your lives are living testimonies to our ministry and to what Christ has done in your hearts. And so when he comes in here and he says, eh, we don't need that stuff, that's a pretty strong statement, right? That's really going against the flow of culture at the time. And he says, I'm able to say that, and I'm able to speak with confidence and boldness, because we are a minister of the new covenant. And he says, our adequacy, our boldness, doesn't just come out of thin air. It's not simply because I'm saying that about myself. He's saying, because God makes us adequate, It isn't something that I manufacture in myself. Rather, God has given me and my fellow workers the credentials such that we can make statements like that. We can speak boldly because our adequacy comes from God. You know, I I think about um, us as saved individuals, right? We can have a confidence and we can be bold about our faith because our adequacy and our credentials are not rooted in the things that we've done for ourselves but because of what Jesus Christ has said about us. What he has done on our behalf for each and every one of us. He shed his blood so that we could have access to the Father directly. We don't have to go through another man. We don't have to go before uh, a priest who makes intercession for us. Jesus is our great high priest and we have access to the Father through his credentials, through his blood that was shed. It kind of reminds me a little bit of um, time that I used to spend with an old friend. His name was Rob Case. You guys may know that name. He was the helicopter pilot for Channel 4 for many years. He has since passed away. He had cancer. But we were close, and we did a lot of things together. And we would go a lot of different places. And he had credentials with Channel 4. He had media credentials. So we would periodically go to Ohio State basketball games. And when we would pull into the parking lot, like all the other cars are lined up, you know, average people, you know, normal people, to go way, way in the back of these parking lots. And we would just kind of go through these new lanes and just kind of go right up and park in these front spots. He would just go to the window, show the attendant his, his media pass, and we'd get on in, have a short walk. Um, there was one time when we went to see, we were going to interview uh, Dave Meyer, Joyce Meyer's husband, when she came to town. And uh, Rob had made arrangements with Dave personally that if there was time, uh, we were going to interview him. So we go down to Nationwide Arena, and we just went anywhere we want. But I'm, I'm walking closely with Rob, right? Because I don't have the credentials, not one bit, right? I don't have a media pass or this clout or anything like that. You know, I would walk like real close to him, and it was like, yep, with him. Uh, I'm, I'm with this guy over here. 
everywhere we went. Well, he, he had a place down in uh, Isleworth, Florida, where Tiger Woods and Payne Stewart, Mark O'Mara, a bunch of other professional golfers also had homes. I got to go down there and spend a couple of days with him. And we golfed on the course with Charles Howell III, professional golfer. He was like a hole behind us and then comes up to the tee with us and we played a hole with him and then he kept on going. That's cool. But not because, not because I lived that kind of lifestyle, but because I was with Rob and his credentials. We stopped for lunch halfway through the course. He didn't order a single thing that was already on the menu. He just made up his own sandwich and then said, can you just bring it out to us on the, on the course? And I did the same thing. I said, yeah, I'll have what, has, what he's having. And you can bring it out to me too. That's what Jesus allows us to do before a holy God. When we will stand there at judgment, Jesus is going to say to the Father, He's with me. It isn't going to be because I can stand there and present this great argument about who I am and the life that I've lived, but rather, I'm going to be there in humility, in humbleness, and I'm going to go, I'm with Him because of what He has said about me and because who He is and what He did at the cross. And so Paul says there in verses 5 and 6, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And church, your adequacy as believers comes from God as well. And then look at verse 6. It says, He made us adequate... God made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul reveals that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Remember how he had just finished a discussion about needing letters of commendation to or from the Corinthians? Well, he takes this idea of of letter... And he transitioned it last week into a couple more verses about stone tablets and draws this parallel to the law. Okay, And here, he's now equating the term letter with the law of Moses. With all the requirements, all of the laws that the Jews had to keep and had to maintain just to try and stay holy, just to atone for their sins, and just to try to present themselves before a holy God. And it's interesting how he makes this transition between verse 1, verse 3, and verse 6. It starts out almost like like a resume at first when he talks about letter. And then he starts talking about these stone tablets. And now he's referring to the law as a whole. We could assume maybe the 613 laws that they had and then some, and then the traditions that they kept as well. And what he's revealing here is he's saying, does God's law actually strike us dead physically? No. He's saying that the law, trying to keep the law, is impossible because all that the law exists to do is to reveal our need for a Savior. The law in the Old Testament was to point to the Messiah. It was there to lead people to Christ. We were to see through the law how sinful and needful and wretched we are without a Savior. Pastor Warren, who officiated uh, our wedding, 
used to say that in Genesis, when God warns Adam about eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he says, surely you will die. And Pastor Warren used to say that we could translate that as, um, in your dying you will die. In other words, even in your physical death, you will also have a spiritual death unless your sin is somehow atoned for and cleansed. And so for those who are living according to the law, and the law is the only measure by which they are trying to meet God's standard, they won't be able to do it. It doesn't have the power to repair. It has the power to reveal, and that's it. And so Paul says that the letter, or the law, leads to death. But the Spirit, life in Christ, gives life. How cool is that? And then in verses 7 through 11, what he's going to do is he's going to compare this new covenant that he says he is a minister of with this old covenant that the others were saying needed to be maintained and observed. And he's going to give us a series of contrasts, and we'll look at that here in a minute. Look at verses 7 through 11. He says, But if the ministry of death in letters, that's what he just told us about the law, engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was how shall the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory for if the ministry of condemnation has glory much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory for indeed what had glory in this case, has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. How about that tongue twister for you? That's right. So, did you hear the first song, or did you come in afterwards? I had mentioned that we chose a song this morning that speaks of giving honor and glory, to God be the glory was the hymn, um, which talks about coming to the Father through Jesus the Son, giving Him glory for the great things that He has done. And so I said, when we see a term over and over like this, we better pay attention, right? So Paul wants to reveal to us and wants to tell us something about the glory that was being sort of maintained or celebrated about the Old Covenant compared with the glory that He is revealing that exists in the New Covenant. And so He uses this term glory, glory, glory over and over, and so I think it's important that we pay attention. Turn, if you would, keep your finger in Second uh, Corinthians here, we're going to come back. Turn, if you would, to Exodus 34, verse 29. Exodus 34, verse 29, and we'll read to 35. And it came about when Moses was coming down the mountain, Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, because of speaking with God. 
So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and, the, and, uh, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face had shown. And so Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with God again. Alright, you can flip back. Some of you might be familiar with that story, but that's the account of Moses the second time coming back down from the mountain, having spent time with God, and his face is just glowing with radiance from spending time with God, reflecting God's glory. So, I have a question for you kids. Which is a brighter source of light, the sun or the moon? Why? It doesn't have its own source of light. You said it does what? It reflects off the sun. So the moon is actually reflecting the real source of light, is what you're telling me. Yeah. Interesting. So in other words, Moses comes down from this mountain, having spent time with the Holy of Holies. And his face is just glowing. His skin is shining. Are we to believe that that is manufactured by Moses himself? Or is that reflecting something else? I believe what the text is trying to tell us is that Moses, for a time, is reflecting the glory of God. He can't help it. He can't help but spend time in the presence of a holy God and come down and not reflect that experience. And what we learn from the text in Exodus is that the Israelites were either confused or scared and didn't understand what exactly was going on. And as a result, Moses felt the need to then veil and cover his face while spending time with the Israelites. But when he would go back and spend time with God, he would take the veil off. Isn't that interesting? And Paul says, back in 2 Corinthians, in verse 7, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, and it did, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? And so Paul is saying, you guys know the story of Moses and you celebrate that and you, you, you give honor to that event. And yet, Moses' face and the glory that it shone was fading. It was great when he came back down from the mountain, but it was only temporary. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't eternal. And he's saying, if you give that much credence and that much glory and credentials to that, how much more glory should the Spirit and the life that Jesus gives us receive? It's eternal. It doesn't fade. 
And so he's going to set up a set of three contrasts here, if you will. He's going to contrast the Old Covenant with the New Covenant and the glory of the Old Covenant and the glory of the New Covenant in three ways. The first is going to be in verse 9. He says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, how much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? So the first comparison he's going to make is the contrast of condemnation versus righteousness. Now some of your translations may say, um, how much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory or excel in glory? Um, some, somebody might say overflow with glory. And so we said earlier that the law existed to basically point and reveal sin, but that's all it could do. At best, it could reveal our sin and our need for a Savior. That's it. But it could not wash our sins. It could not cleanse our sins. How many of you remember, it's a somewhat recent commercial campaign. I think it might be for credit monitoring maybe. Where they do a series of illustrations. They go into like a dental office and uh, somebody's seated in the dental chair there and the, the attendant says, yeah, you have a lot of cavities. And the patient says, all right, so what are we going to do? And they say, oh, we're just a cavity monitoring service. We don't actually fix your cavities. We don't actually repair. And then I think, um, what's another? Maybe it might even be credit. Like, oh, we're just a credit monitoring system, but we don't actually fix or repair your credit. You know, that's kind of how the law was, right? The law was kind of like, you have sin, and you are unrighteous before a holy God. You have transgressed against his standard. But that's it. There was no power to repair in the law. But under the new covenant, there's power to repair. There's power to identify the cavity and do the filling. The second contrast that Paul is going to set up for us with regards to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, is going to be in verse 10. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. Kind of a tricky statement there. But what he's saying is that in all of these Jewish traditions, in this Mosaic law that God had given to them, it was designed to point to Jesus the Messiah. And so it had glory in so far as it was the standard until the one in whom it is designed to point to and reveal comes and now Jesus surpasses the law in his glory. And so how does the law still have glory when in fact the one who surpasses it and fulfills it is even greater in glory? Does that make sense? Let me put it to you like this. Here's how, here's how this concept works in my life. I'm pretty sure that before Susan agreed to marry me, and after we got married, I was the bee's knees. I mean, I was it, right? I had to be the greatest thing since sliced bread for her. Until Sayer came along, and then Rennie came along, and now ultimately Mirren. And all of my glory has been surpassed. In other words, I'm at the bottom of the totem pole, 
and I have no glory at all anymore. What I once had, I no longer have because as far as she's concerned, better things have come along. Paul is saying, the glory that once existed in the law, although limited and fading as it was, has been surpassed by the one in whom it pointed to, or points to. And now that Jesus has come and the Spirit has given us life in Christ, His glory far surpasses any glory that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant should still have. The third contrast that Paul is going to give to us is found in verse 11. He is going to reveal the contrast of the Old and the New Covenant with regards to the fading glory of the letter and the law compared with the permanency of life in Christ. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Now, doesn't that just kind of make sense? Doesn't that just seem kind of practical and reasonable and logical? That if something which fades away and is essentially temporary in nature compared with something that is everlasting and permanent, shouldn't that be much greater and receive much more honor and much more glory? We said last week that in Christ Jesus, He has sealed us and marked us with His Holy Spirit. There is nothing that we can do to disqualify ourselves from eternity with Christ. If you didn't do something to earn it in the first place, then you can't do something to reject it either. You can't disqualify yourself. There's, there's no sin that is so great that you now go, well, that's it, I blew it. And Jesus goes, you're out. Not a chance. Because there was nothing that you had done that was so great in the first place that he, his sin couldn't wash and couldn't cover. And so, Paul says, that kind of permanency is due all kinds of honor and glory. And so, Paul has revealed to us that he is adequate as a minister of the New Covenant because the New Covenant is far superior to the Old Covenant. And it's far superior because it has the power to save. Its glory surpasses that of the fading glory and it is permanent. On the law's best day, it was still temporary at best. And then look at verses 12 through 18 with me. He says, Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. You know, from the time that we have spent looking at Paul's epistles, I would say he's pretty bold in his speech, wouldn't you say? You know, just when he's given 
um, accounts and, and he's recalled uh, activities and events in his life, being shipwrecked and being beaten, being thrown in prison. That's a result of his boldness and his confidence in speech. And so he is saying this to the Corinthians, but we know because we have so much from Paul that this is consistent with his life. This isn't a one-off statement that he's trying to convince a particular audience. We know, we have the blessing and the privilege of having the entire New Testament and all of his texts and the texts of the other apostles as well. And we know that this isn't a unique statement. This is consistent with the life that Paul lived. And so he says, Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. A little bit of a tongue twister, but not quite as twisting as our previous text there. And so he comes out of the gate in verse 12. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. What hope is he referring to? Everything he has just told us about the Old Testament. He has a hope in the Spirit who gives life, as opposed to a letter that results in death. He has a hope in the eternal permanency of the New Covenant. He has a hope in the glory of the New Covenant. And he has a hope in the grace and the righteousness that result from life in the New Covenant. And it's those things that he has just told us about that give him the confidence to speak boldly and to say, I'm the one who's adequate. Look at, uh, I think it's Second Corinthians 5.21. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks. Second Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Paul's like, that's me. Oftentimes you'll hear people in the church refer to this passage as the great exchange. Jesus exchanged our sin and filthiness and unrighteousness in exchange for His righteousness. Paul says, I've got boldness, i got confidence, I speak like that because I've been imparted with Jesus' righteousness. He took my sin... In exchange, he gave me his righteousness. I mean, where are we as believers in that equation? We don't have a whole lot of role in that, do we? We don't see a lot of, well, when I did this and this, then Jesus granted me his righteousness. No. Paul knows that, and he's saying to the church in Corinth, you all were saved on that same principle. Not rehearsing and regurgitating a bunch of rules, but grace through faith in Jesus.
That's true of every one of us. And so then Paul, as we kind of pull this together here, he's going to transition and he's going to use this kind of neat interplay between these ideas of a veil and, and spirit. Okay, You saw the term veil here repeated in verses 12 through 18 several times. And he starts out in verse 13 referring to a historic event that we read in Exodus. He's still referring to that time when Moses comes down from the mountain and has to veil his face. Okay, and so when he's referring to that, he's referring to an historic event. And he's saying that Moses had to veil his face and cover it in the presence of the Israelites who seemingly didn't understand what was going on with Moses' face. Now Paul gives us maybe a little more information in verse 14 than we get in Exodus. Exodus is a pretty literal record of what took place. Paul maybe adds to this a little bit where he says, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. Now this is Paul adding, but he's saying part of the reason the Israelites didn't understand what they were seeing and witnessing with Moses' face was because they had hard hearts about it. They didn't understand that he was reflecting the glory of God. And in fact, I would submit that the Israelites were probably pretty susceptible to even at some point later on beginning to worship Moses and his face. They were initially scared, afraid, confused about it. But we see a pattern in humanity of finding things to worship, to find things to become idols for us, whether we intentionally set them up on an altar or not, each and every one of us has our own little idols at times. And so it's likely that they may have started setting Moses up in his face as an idol, but Paul just tells us simply, and nothing more, that it was the result of hardened hearts. So he's referring to a physical veil first. And then, verses 14 through 16, it kind of transitions a little bit. And he starts to use this term veil synonymously with a spiritual blindness, okay? But their minds, in verse 14, were hardened for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And so what we see here is he's using this concept of a physical uh, barrier, right? Like women will wear a veil sometimes on weddings. And he's now using that term synonymously with hearts being veiled. And he says, every time the law is read, insofar as somebody doesn't see and turn to Jesus, it's the result of a veiled heart and a hardened heart. So it's likely that Paul is saying, these false teachers that come in when I'm not around and who are leading you astray have veiled hearts because though they're promoting the law, they're not seeing Jesus in it. Because if their hearts were not veiled, then they would understand that the law exists to point us to a Messiah. And so he says, unless a person has turned to Jesus who removes the veil, they're still dead in their thinking. 
they're still dead in their transgressions. Only Christ has the ability to lift a veil in unhardened hearts, if you will. Look at what he says in 14. It remains unlifted, but removed by Christ. In verse 15, he says, it lies over their hearts. In verse 16, he says, when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Verse 18, unveiled faces. So this idea of veiling becomes synonymous with a spiritual blindness to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, Think about the uh, example of the two men on the road to Emmaus. You guys remember that story? After the crucifixion, they're walking and they're traveling and they meet up with this gentleman who essentially comes from behind and catches up with them and he says, hey, what are you guys guys talking about? And they're like, where have you been? Do you not know what just took place in Jerusalem? It has been craziness the last week. They crucified this guy and all this stuff and they're talking and they don't recognize that it's the resurrected Jesus. And so they're walking and they're talking with him and he starts to open up the scriptures to them and he starts to walk them through the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophecies that existed to point and to reveal the Messiah. And as they're walking, remember what they said? They said, Man, when he started talking about those scriptures to us, did not our hearts burn within us? As Jesus, through the Spirit, gave life and understanding to black ink on white paper, they began to see and understand who Jesus was as he hung there on the cross. And the events that were just craziness, But historical activity for them now became life-changing. And it came as a result of Jesus lifting the veil that they had on their hearts so that the text and the law and the letter that they had known very, very well came alive to them through the person of Jesus. In the last two verses we'll look at, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. A little bit um, tricky verse, but what's kind of interesting here is that Paul feels the need, I believe, in verse 17, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Remember that Paul was super zealous as a Pharisee of Pharisees to persecute Christians. And if you ask Paul, Saul, uh, before his um, salvation experience, are you for the Lord? He'd go, absolutely. As far as Saul was concerned, he was doing God's work. He was an advocate for Yahweh. And the distinction that he's making here is not just God, but specifically Jesus. And he told us that a little bit further up in verse 14. 
I believe he feels the need to say, now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I actually heard, we had an event in our building downtown last night. It was kind of a neat church service, if you will. And somebody actually quoted this passage, and they quoted it in reference to the freedom that we have from sin. And there's probably some truth in that. But I believe what Paul is really telling us here is that when we have life in the Spirit, we are free from all of the demands that the law puts on us. The liberty that we have is not just freedom from sin, but it's freedom from having to obey and do all of this stuff that still doesn't allow us to match up to the standard that God has. And so the liberty that he's telling the church in Corinth is you have liberty in the Spirit because he gives life and he tells you you don't have to follow and obey all of these rules in order to be right with God. And he says, but we all with unveiled face. There's that term unveiled again. That's all of us, friends. And Paul is including himself in there. He's saying, we all as believers who have life in the Spirit, in the New Covenant, are being transformed. And he says that we look at Jesus as a mirror image of God the Father. Okay? When we see Jesus, it's as though we're seeing a mirror image of God himself. You remember what Philip asked Jesus? He said, will you please uh, show us the Father? And Philip goes, after all this time that you have, or Jesus says, after all this time that you've spent with me, don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Hebrews 1.3 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. And so I would summarize it this way. The Israelites, at best, were supposed to understand that Moses' face was just merely a reflection of the holiness and the glory of God. Okay, Whether they got that or not, that, at best, that's what it could do. For the believer, we understand that Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. And our trust, our faith, and our life in Jesus means that we will one day see the Father face to face. And until we stand there before Him, and He welcomes us home, He says here that from moment by moment we're being transformed by glory to glory. That there is this image, and there is this model, that God has for us. And though we may not look like it perfectly, one day we will be made perfect. Each and every one of us is slightly more perfect than we were when Jesus found us. But we won't necessarily make it completely this side of heaven. But when we see Him face to face and we are justified and then we are glorified instantaneously, we'll have new bodies, we'll be made white as snow, and we'll be like Him. We will not be God, but we will be like Him. Remember in the garden that we were made in the image of God? And we corrupted it with our sin? We are being transformed and one day we'll be restored.
So maybe three things here this morning. Um, Similar to last week, let's not forget that our adequacy comes from God. Just like Paul, we can have a confidence to stand boldly because God has equipped us. Remember what Jesus promised the disciples? He said, I'm going to give and send the Holy Spirit to you. He's going to be your counselor and he's going to give you all the words to say. So that when you go before kings and judges and magistrates and world leaders, you're going to have all of the vocabulary. I'm going to give you the words to say and I'll take care of you. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been in the presence of somebody and started started sharing about Jesus and all of a sudden this great testimony and this great presentation came out and you walk away and you go, I don't know how I, I... God just used me. He just gave me the words to say. I didn't think that it was going to happen and I was pretty nervous about the encounter prior but then everything just took place. Everything just took care of itself. Second thing is that we should be mindful that... Um, the sacraments and the liturgical activities that we practice today are not more glorious than Jesus himself. So we are going to partake of Holy Communion here in a few minutes after this, after our time of worship. And while that's a great practice for us, what is it supposed to do? It is supposed to remind us and point us back to Jesus. It is to cause us to remember what he has done for us. When he sat in the upper room with the disciples, he said, this is what I'm about to do. This bread and this cup represent my body and my blood, and it's the new covenant. So insofar as we do things together, and it could even be our monthly gatherings, it could be our baptisms, it could be our football, whatever it might be, those are great things. Even just hanging out with each other. Let's not forget that the glory lies in the one who unites all of us. And so sometimes we can get, we can prioritize and place on a high pedestal the things and the activities, but let's not forget who is really owed the glory in those things and what those activities exist to do. And then the last thing is let's have, um, let's have a proper reverence and attitude for the veil that has been lifted from each and every one of our hearts. Um, Ephesians 2.8 says that it is by faith or grace that we have been saved through faith. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Not so that we might boast, but rather it has been a gift from God. Each and every one of us has been privileged with confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior because God has blessed us and privileged us with an ability to recognize that this is all about Him. Plenty of people have read this cover to cover and in the end, they may not have had that supernatural revelation that is a gift from God, that Jesus is Lord. And all it was was just another good book. And Jesus has removed the veil from each and every one of our hearts such that we are no longer hardened, but we recognize our sin, we recognize our need for a Savior, and we have new life in Him under the new covenant. So let us be grateful and thankful for that and not take it necessarily for granted.
Amen.